Well, I'm not sure what life's like for you at the moment, but for me, it is a lot of Zoom meetings. I'm spending a lot of time sitting right here talking to people on Zoom. And what I find is there are a lot of people who are actually sticking a different background to my bookshelf behind them. They're using all sorts of backgrounds, some of them pretty spectacular, things like uh, the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco or some kind of big Hawaiian beach scene and something that is pretty spectacular tends to pop up in the backdrop often in those Zoom meetings. Well, we're starting a series in Romans 9 to 11, but as we do that, uh, it's important that we remember the spectacular backdrop that sits behind these chapters, chapters 9 to 11. And the backdrop in chapters 1 to 8 is the biggest and boldest view of the gospel that you get in all of the New Testament. And so let me give you just a little bit of a summary of that so we keep in mind that backdrop before we dive into the rest of what we're looking at today in Romans 9. And in summary, really, the opening chapters, these opening eight chapters of Romans describe the reality that all humanity has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God so that both Jew and Gentile have turned away from God. No one is righteous. No one can claim to be okay with God through what they've done. And God is right to condemn all of humanity for its sinfulness, for its rebellion towards God. And yet the wonder of the gospel is that God has graciously and mercifully gifted a righteousness that doesn't come from inside of us, but has come as a free gift through God's work at the cross in the person of Jesus Christ. And all of this benefit of all of our sins being laid on Jesus so that all of our sinfulness would be paid in full before God, all of the benefit of that is accessed uh, for us simply by trust in him. And that's the big picture background of Romans 1 to 8 before we look at Romans 9. We're living in fairly extraordinary times and a lot of our world leaders are under pretty significant scrutiny at the moment because many of the decisions they make are really, really significant. It's important what they decide because it has, in many instances, real life and death consequences for us. And so people scrutinise their actions and they say, what are they doing? And is what they are doing right for their country? Well, essentially, by the time we get to the end of chapter 8, Romans 9 to 11 then expands on a similar question of God. Is what God is doing right in our world? Is what he is doing okay? And so that's kind of the question that Romans 9 to 11 is dealing with. And they're the chapters we're looking at for a few weeks as we unpack these chapters, but today it's Romans 9, 1 to 18. And the big question really is, uh, what about this nation of Israel? So alongside of the question, is, is what God is doing right, is the question of the future of Israel. And you might think to yourself, who really cares about the future of Israel? How is that relevant and significant? Well, let me just show you why it's relevant and significant. Um, but first, by starting with us and our consequences now, our situation that we're in now. Uh, as a result of the gospel, this expanded view that we've had in the opening chapters of Romans, 
uh, you and I can have peace with God based on the work of Jesus at the cross and his raised life because of everything Jesus has done for, for us. We can have peace with God and the sure and certain hope of a resurrected life living in God's blessings for all of eternity. That's good news. That's the great news of the gospel. But all of that is based on God's promises. All of that is based on God's word to us. And the history that unfolds throughout the Old Testament of the nation of Israel is that God has made promises. God's word has been given to Israel and promises have come to the nation of Israel. And so people may well be getting to this point in the, in the letter to Romans and thinking to themselves, if our future is relying on the word of God and the promises of God, didn't God make promises in the past? Hasn't God's word gone to all of Israel in the past? And therefore, looking back and looking into God's dealings with Israel is important because it would help us to understand whether or not we can trust God's promises and God's word for us, his word of the gospel, for us in the here and now. It's super relevant to ask the question, what about Israel? Because it asks that question about what about God? Is God good for his promises? When I was a kid, my dad would often make promises to kick a footy with me or to go down to the cricket nets with me. And very occasionally, dad wouldn't be able to deliver on those promises. Something had come up and he wouldn't be able to actually take me down to the nets. And so I had the great disappointment of not being able to do something that my dad had given his word on and had made promises on. And similarly, when I was a kid, I'd I regularly be asked to clean my room and I would give my word and make a promise that I would clean my room and then all of a sudden nothing came up and I never cleaned my room. And so I wasn't good for my promise. I wasn't good for my word on those occasions. So the question really is, is God like us? Is he able to make promises and to give his word and yet not deliver? Because that would be vitally important if our eternal destiny is based on God's word and God's promises in the past, then it's vital that we can be sure that we can trust that God is good for his word and good for his promises. So let's have a look at verse 1 to 3 of chapter 9. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Paul makes a pretty spectacular claim in these verses. You see, he makes the claim that he would prefer to be cursed and cut off if that was to benefit his brothers, his people, the nation of Israel. If he could change places with Israel who are cursed and cut off from God because they haven't turned to Jesus in trust, then Paul would do it. He would be cursed and cut off if he could substitute himself for his people. In the last 10 years or so, we've had a huge number of cooking shows hit our television screens. And many of them prepare pretty spectacular dishes. And it's a common phrase to hear someone say in regard to a particular dish or a dessert, 
that is to die for. I wonder if you've heard that saying before, someone saying, that is to die for, that particular dish. Now, clearly, when they say that, they don't actually mean it. They don't mean if I could eat this, I would be happy if I was to die straight away after it. But when Paul says he could wish that he was cursed and cut off from God, if it meant that the nation of Israel would be saved, he does mean it. He's at great pains to say that he really does mean this. His conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. He says he's not lying. He really does desperately want to be cursed and cut off if it was to mean that the nation of Israel would be saved. Now, that is a massive thing to say. I wonder if you think about the lost people in Orange, those who are cursed and cut off from God because they haven't turned to Jesus in trust and they don't have the great hopes of the gospel. If you can think about those people, what are you willing to give up in order that they would come to faith in Jesus? In order that they would grasp hold of the great promises of the gospel, what would you give up? When I think about myself, I think there's a fairly limited list. I'm happy to give up a night or two gathering with people and trying to teach them this gospel truth. I'm happy to do a little bit of praying for some people. But would I be happy to put my own salvation on the line and swap places with them in order that God would save them and not me? That's exactly what Paul says in these verses. And he's saying exactly what Jesus did when he went to the cross. He swapped places in order that many would be saved and would be right with God. You see, Jesus took the curse that should have been on us and he took it on himself so that he would free us from the curse so that we would enjoy all the blessings of God. And Paul is simply reflecting the Christ-like character that comes from knowing Jesus and knowing the gospel. And it should be something that's growing in us also, that we would be people who grow in Christ-like character with a great heart for the lost people around us. What are you willing to give up in order that some may be saved? Now let's move on and deal with this question of whether or not God is good for his word whether or not God has kept his promises to Israel. Let's have a look at verse 6. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Now Israel pops up twice in this verse, but it's used in different ways. Uh, My kids use a few words in different ways to me. They use the word sick in different ways to how I've used them. I would use sick to describe someone who is ill or unwell. Uh, But in the past, my kids have used the word sick in order to describe something that's very good. And similarly, they use the the word beast differently to me. I'd use the word beast to describe a large animal. Uh, They use the word beast often to to describe something that is really, really good. Now, we often use words that have two different meanings. And in verse 6 of Romans 9, Paul is using the word Israel, with two very different meanings. So when he says, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, that first Israel, he is describing the Israel, the nation of Israel, those who have joined the nation of Israel by birth, one ethnic group, 
And the second Israel in verse 6 are the Israel, the chosen people of, of God who received God's blessings and God's forgiveness. And so verse 6 tells us not all of national Israel are the Israel that will receive the promises, the word of God and all the blessings of the gospel. So God has God is good for his word because those promises were not made to all of national Israel, all of ethnic Israel. They were made to a specific group within Israel, the chosen people of God. Let's have a look at verse 8. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. In other words, it's not the children by physical descent. It's not those who are born into the nation of Israel who are recipients of God's word and God's promises. It's those who, whom God has made the promise to and whom God has called from those people, from amongst those people of Israel that are recipients of God's promises and of all the blessings that come through God's promises. And now... <clears throat> Paul moves on to give two descriptions uh, involving two different groups of people uh, from the Old Testament, from our Old Testament history. But firstly, he describes that God chooses Isaac and not Ishmael, and secondly, that God chooses Jacob and not Esau. And he's describing that God has always chosen some and not all of national Israel. Have a look with me at verse 9. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So Abraham has both Isaac and Ishmael as sons, and yet God only gives the promise to Isaac. And similarly, Jacob and Esau are both sons of Isaac, both within the nation of Israel, and yet the promises of God only go to Jacob. Jacob is chosen to be one of God's children, and Esau is not. Jacob is loved and Esau is hated. And why is that? Well, if you have a look at those verses, it's simply because God chooses some and doesn't choose others. Verse 11 says, In order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls. And this happens even before Jacob and Esau are born. So it's not because of any good works in them. It's not because of any of their character that God chooses them. It's simply because God has decided that he'll show favour to Jacob and not to Esau. When I was a kid, we used to play a lot of soccer and football and cricket, both during school breaks and after school. And often it was the case where there were two captains selected and those two captains would um, pick a team from all those kids who were standing around waiting to play the game. And they'd pick those sporting teams based on who was the best at that particular sport. Well, it's not so with God. 
See, God doesn't see character and then respond by saving or not saving some. It's entirely because of God's election that he chooses some and not others. Now, logically, some of us will say, well, isn't that wrong that God chooses to condemn some and to save others simply on a whim? But it's important now to remember the backdrop to all of Romans 9 to 11. It might be a legitimate uh, claim against God that if God was to condemn people simply because he chose to condemn them, then there would be an issue with God's justice and God's character. But the backdrop to these chapters, remember, is that all humanity has sinned, both Jew and Gentile, and no one is righteous, not even one. So God is right and just, and God's character is right if he were to condemn all of humanity. And so really, God's mercy is the undeserved side of the equation here. God would be right to wipe out all humanity and to show judgment to everyone, but he graciously and mercifully chooses to show mercy and compassion to some. And that's the great news of the gospel. So we ought to always remember that big picture backdrop to the reality of God hardening some and showing compassion and mercy to others. There is no unfairness in any of this. What does that mean for us? Well, it means actually that because salvation is all from God, not just the work of Jesus on the cross is from God, but actually God's call and election to salvation, God bringing people to faith in Jesus, even that is from God. And because of that, it means that there ought to be no pride in us. See, I'm not a Christian because my family were full of Christians or because I've been baptised, or because I attend a church or a Zoom meeting now. Uh, None of that is true. I'm a Christian because, first and foremost, God chose to show mercy and compassion when he might have hardened me. God is always just and right, and he would be just and right to condemn me because I'm a sinner. I'm a rebel before him. But praise God that he hasn't chosen to do that. He has chosen to show me mercy and compassion by opening up my eyes to the truth of his gospel so that I would be saved and joined in with the children of God who are children because of the promise of God, because of the word of God. And so all the praise and glory and honour that comes in regard to salvation is all for God. And none of it is for me, and none of it's for you. And as we think about that, we ought to remember also that God is absolutely just and right in everything that he does. He's right to condemn many, because many have turned. In fact, all humanity has turned away from God and lived as rebels towards him and chosen to live sinful lives opposed to God's authority. So God is right in bringing judgment. But God is merciful and compassionate to many. And so all praise and glory and honour ought to be to him. It's it's apparently a very common nightmare to have to be in a stressful situation, perhaps with the bad guy chasing after you, 
or with disaster about to befall you in your nightmare, in your dream, and then seeking to cry out, to yell out and scream out in response to that stressful situation that you're in, but not being able to get a word out, not being able to get a noise out of your throat. It's a common dream that apparently most of us will have at some stage in our life. And it's possible to think about the situation of people before God as like those like those dreams that we have where we're trying to scream out and yet can't make a noise. So we might think of ourselves as trying to turn to God in trust and yet we can't turn to God in trust. But actually when these verses talk about God hardening some, it's not the situation that people are trying to turn to God in trust, trying to be made right with him, but God refuses to allow them to to make that noise, refuses to allow them to come to him. God hardens people who are inherently turned away from him. God condemns people who are sinful by nature because all of humanity is sinful by nature. So there is no charge that will stand against God's justice. He's the one who owns the universe and everything in it. It's his to do what he wants. But as God acts in our world, he always acts with perfect justice. And he acts with perfect justice to judge many amongst a humanity that is turned against him in rebellion. So as we finish up today, as we think through these things today, how ought we to respond? We need to have clearly in mind that there is nothing in us that causes or compels God to save us. All of salvation is a work of God, not just at the cross, but in the actual calling of us to put our trust in Jesus. It's not because we're inherently nice people or capable of doing more good than bad. It's because God is a God of mercy and chooses to show compassion to who he would show compassion. Why does God do that? Because he does. That's the God that he is. And our response ought to be a lifelong thankfulness for a mercy we don't deserve and a lifelong obedience to the God who saved us to himself and a life of service to the God who saved us. See, in the end, all glory and honour and praise and worship goes to the God who chooses to show mercy to some. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do want to thank you that you're a God of great mercy and compassion. We recognize the truth that none of us deserve to be brought into relationship with you, that none of us deserve your blessings or the gift of eternal life, and that all of us deserve to come under your eternal judgment. But we give you great praise and glory and honor for the incredible free gift, for the grace that comes to us through the person and work of Jesus. We praise you that though you could have condemned, you've shown mercy. And so, Lord, please help us by the power of your spirit and your word to live lives of thankfulness and godly obedience in service of you all of our days. And we pray this in the precious name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.